Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Football Story podcast. Today, we are being joined by Australian football journalist Daniel Garb. He's covered everything from the EPL to the A-League and has been to two World Cups. We are privileged to be interviewing one of the most iconic footballing voices in the country. Thank you for joining us, uh, Garby. We really want to delve deep into the career that you've had. Uh, how are you going tonight? Yeah, good. Very kind uh, intro. Thanks very much for that. Uh, I'm going well, as, as well as can be during, uh, during ISO. So just waiting for sport to return like everyone else, but trying to keep busy like the rest as well. Yeah, sounds good. So we'll start from sort of right at the start. Um, tell us a bit about your early memories of sport. Did you have a favourite sport growing up? Uh, did you play any sports? So, yeah. Um, yeah, so growing up in Perth, it was all soccer and, uh, and Aussie rules for me. Um, didn't play Aussie rules because I would have had my head taken off, but watched a lot of it. Um, but played, yeah, soccer from the age of five uh, all the way through my entire life up until a few years ago uh, when I became a bit too old and a bit too slow. So, yeah, a major part of my life, those two sports. Loved cricket as well enormously uh, in the summer and, uh, and played a bit of golf as a youngster as well and still love golf. But uh, to watch footy was, was up there, but, uh, but soccer was always the deep-lying passion, I think, the sentimental favourite because I played it my whole life and uh, anyone who becomes immersed in Australian football, I think you... Uh, it becomes a bit of a passion project, and it was probably like that for me from a very early age as well. So, uh, yeah, they were the two main ones. And, yeah, from what I remember in terms of games grabbing me uh, soccer-wise as a kid, uh, the glory only came in in 96, so it was hard to watch sort of professional games in Perth as a youngster. But I remember the, uh, the WA State team played against Millwall in 1989. So Millwall came to... To WA. They used to get like an overseas team coming every three or four years. And my dad took me to watch uh, yeah, the WA state team in Millwall played with a young Teddy Sheringham in the lineup. I remember that. So even as a five, six-year-old kid, that stood out for me. And then the 1989 FA Cup final when Liverpool beat Everton, I watched that as a youngster. I don't think I watched it live. It would have been on late at night. But the next day, and then I had the tape and I watched it probably about 400 times afterwards. And that game sort of was a massive catalyst for me becoming a, a football fan. So those are the two sort of soccer games that stand out. Cool. Um, just one from me now. How did you get into journalism and uh, in particular soccer? Yeah, so I, I did a commerce degree at university. I didn't go straight into the media in that respect, but uh, I was obsessed with sport, obviously, um, and was always interested in the media, just didn't fully commit. Uh, university-wise, and then basically halfway through my uni degree, I got a gig writing some AFL stories uh, for a website and just loved it and wanted to keep going with it. And uh, from there, things just grew, basically, and got a job at a radio station in Perth, 6PR, and that was at the time when, of course, the Socceroos had just qualified for the World Cup in Germany after 32 years. The A-League had just started and was booming. And I just thought it's a great opportunity to get into, into football. And there were opportunities there to broadcast. I backed myself and, uh, and it basically grew from there. And then I moved to Melbourne, did the same sort of thing at SEN. And a few years later, landed up at Fox to cut a long story short. But uh, yeah, I didn't go through it the straightforward way of a uni degree, but I eventually got my qualifications through uni. But just a uh, 
yeah, just went for it basically on the side and, and things started to happen pretty quickly. Cool. So, yeah, I'm sure we all watched you a lot on Fox. Um, you sort of had you sort of had the job that we all wanted. Like, <laughs> you're always on the sidelines. So, um, what made you support Liverpool as a youngster? Good question. So, yeah, that 89 FA Cup final, I mean, look, I was very young, sort of six, five, six years old or whatever. But I remember even as a kid, something about the club just seeming special. Now, I mean, I didn't watch many games then because we didn't have games broadcast all the time like we do now. We sort of got the FA Cup final uh, once a year that would be broadcast live. And that was the only live international or overseas game that we got. We get a highlight show once a week. So that was the first full game I watched. And it was just after Hillsborough happened and the way in which they sang, you'll never walk alone. The fact that Liverpool won the game 3-2. I fell in love with John Barnes. All these elements added up to me becoming a, uh, a passionate fan early on. But it was tough in the early stages because, A, we couldn't watch it. I mean, you guys grew up in a different era. I mean, I, I'm sounding old here, but, you know, <laughs> we can only watch the Premier League live from the late 90s. So for the first 15 years of my life, we'd watch a highlight show once a week in the FA Cup final. That was it. That's all we got. So it was very different. But, um, yeah, I just, I love the club, but it was tough because after that FA Cup final win, they won the league the next year, Liverpool, and then they became rubbish throughout the 90s, uh, really poor. And we're basically a mid-table team. And it was tough to, to follow them through that period because you know, United were winning titles. Everyone was jumping on the United bandwagon. But I stuck with the Reds. My grandfather used to send me scarves and newspaper clippings from South Africa where they had better coverage and magazines and books. And he wasn't a Liverpool fan, but he just loved my passion and kept me going basically in that regard. And I thought I'll stick with them. And then thankfully it turned and some good times followed. Yeah, I think well, you made the right choice there. Um, yeah. <laughs> As a fellow Liverpool supporter, but I, I agree. Um, and I sort of had a similar story where I started supporting them around 2005. Obviously, my dad introducing me to Liverpool. He's always been a fan. And, um, like, it was good for those two years. Like, we won the Champions League, then we won the FA Cup. But then we didn't win anything for years. So, up until the last few years, I've sort of shared that pain with you <laughs> yeah but see the pain you had liverpool was still a top four team pretty yeah. much yeah like mid 90s they were a legitimate mid-table side for a few years i mean it was really bad yeah. uh, and then they sort of jumped up into a top three top four team but there weren't many other teams that competed with them uh, in terms of finances so they sort of fell into third or fourth maybe one or two seasons they sort of half challenged for the league they were so far off it they really were so it was tough but thankfully things uh, turned around well, we might get on to talking about um, Liverpool and whether they will eventually lift this title um, a bit later on. Do you want to just tell us a bit about like you going over, kind of starting to work at uh, you know on the EPL um, and what what that was like, kind of being thrust into this kind of you know a world that would have been very different from the one you'd you'd come from. Yeah, it was it was daunting. So, I mean, the the job was basically. I mean, I took a punt in a way because David Davudovic, who I'm sure you know, Harold's son, former Harold's son, uh, football writer now, was doing the job in a freelance way before me. Him and I are good mates and we worked together for a little bit when he was in Perth. And I sort of said to him, half joking, half seriously, listen, mate, if you ever are coming home from that gig, I'd love to put my name forward. Can you let me know? And he did one day and I honestly just made a call to, uh, to the, the football boss at Fox who half knew me 
put my case forward and he said, all right, we'll give you a go. When are you going over? And I mean, I had to basically quit my job, pack up my stuff, move from Melbourne to London within the space of a couple of months. And uh, there were no guarantees that it would last. But I just knew I had to take a punt and I knew that I had to have a go at it because, I mean, yeah, it was the most ridiculously good job imaginable. And I, I knew that it would be a, a once in a lifetime opportunity. And even if it didn't work out, I had to give it a go. So with that in mind, I was daunted early on because I just didn't want to make any mistakes. I didn't want to give them any excuse to say, oh, we're not going to use you anymore. So I really worked hard and was probably a little bit too intense on camera and practiced too hard because I was just so scared of making a mistake and being basically <laughs> pushed to the side that I was probably pretty ordinary for the first year or so. But thankfully, they... Um, they persisted with me and I, I grew in confidence a bit more and uh, and was able to, to hopefully do some good stuff. But it was daunting early on and risky, but at the same time, I just absolutely love it. And it gave me yeah, the best experience of my life. Not only football, that was a big part of it, the EPL, but also got to do you know, two Ashes tours, British Open golf, Commonwealth Games, uh, Davis Cup tennis, all these other things that were a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I mean, just kind of going through your, your social media, seeing your attendance at all these amazing sporting events. Um, must have been living the dream. All right, best best EPL atmosphere. And <laughs> I know you might want to say Anfield. I'm going to exclude you from saying that. Okay. Um, for this, best EPL atmosphere. Yeah, I probably wouldn't say Anfield, to be honest. I would say the best atmosphere per capita. So the best atmosphere taking into yep. account ground size and uh, club size would be Crystal Palace. They mm. absolutely rock. They've got some ultra fans and no matter where they are on the table, they're awesome. St. James Park as well, absolutely love. It's one of the few grounds outside of London that's actually in the middle of the city. If you go to Manchester or Liverpool or to the Midlands or whatnot and you're getting off at the train station, you're taking a 20-minute cab to the ground. Uh, St. James's Park, you walk from the train station to the ground. So it's got such a buzz about it and the Geordies are just nuts. I mean... And they're yeah. just if, if they're not celebrating their team, they're complaining about something. And either way, it accounts for a great atmosphere inside the ground. So I love those two grounds. In terms of the big ones, they're all pretty similar. I used to love Stamford Bridge and the old White Hart Lane because they're in between the new massive grounds and old school grounds. They're a little bit in between. So they had a bit of that old school kind of vibe about it. Anfield did as well for a bit. And now they've got the new stands, so it's a bit more of a mega stadium. But I mean, the other ones would all absolutely rock when they were up and going in a big game. But there are other games where, you know, if Liverpool's playing uh, Burnley and it's, you know, they're not going well or United's playing Southampton and they're struggling for rhythm early on, it can get quiet in there. And, uh, you know, I've been to some A-League games where there's a better atmosphere than some Premier League games. People don't always like hearing that, but it's true. So, yeah, the, the, the big crowd, the big games would be a little bit, uh, or the big teams would be a little bit inconsistent. But when there was a big game, Tottenham Arsenal, Liverpool United, and the goal started going in. I mean, you can't beat it. It's just the yeah. best thing you'd ever want to witness. Yeah. And is there a game, a specific game that stands out? So, I mean, I was there for the Aguero winner. That was my first season um, for them winning the league. So, you, mean, you to can't top, beat hey? that. Yeah. You can't beat that. The game, two games before that, when City beat United in the derby to put themselves in the position to win the league, that was rocking just as much as the Aguero winner because they'd beaten United. And then they put themselves in the ascendancy and they went on to win their next two games. So that one's memorable as well. I mean, I've watched, you know, United beat Arsenal 8-2. 
I was there for the Balotelli um, Why yeah, Always yeah. Me game. I mean, that was awesome as well. You know, Liverpool season when they just missed out on the league, some of the performances they put in that campaign, the 5-1 over Arsenal when they were up 4-0 inside 25 minutes was just utterly berserk. And being a Reds fan, I mean, I completely lost it myself. I was just like, stuff it, I'm just celebrating now. Because it was just so much fun and I've got so many Arsenal mates and I really enjoyed that moment. Um, yeah, plenty. And then Leicester. I mean, Leicester winning the, se- the league was just the best story that I ever saw there by a long, long way. And, and the party in every single game as they went on to win that title was just so much fun to witness. Yeah, cool. Just something pretty similar now. Best best memory um, working on the APL. Any good stories that you have that maybe not so much big games, but mm. something you really enjoyed? Yeah, well, Leicester. I'm you know that that's something I really enjoyed because I saw with Leicester, I saw the best of sport and what sport can actually do to society. So, you know, when Leicester won, but Leicester's not a, a very exciting town. In fact, it's a bit of a boring town. But when they won the league, the party in the streets as you can imagine, was, was epic. And, I mean, I saw kids who probably rolled around in street gangs during the day sort of partying with distinguished elderly members of the community, grandparents, side by side. Everyone just became one. And that I just love watching that because you see what sport does to people and it just it breaks down all barriers and unifies people. And, and I love that. But uh, the other great memories, I mean, look, all the interviews I was fortunate enough to do, I mean, you know, the stars in the league, Mourinho, Balotelli, Gerard, Lampard, Van Persie, uh, Rooney, etc. And then, you know, the, the former players I was lucky enough to interview, you know, Ian Rush and Marcel Desailly and uh, and all of these guys before and after games, Ray Wilkins and and the likes. I mean, interviewing them for five minutes at a time, Dennis Irwin, Gary Pallister, was just fantastic. Absolutely loved it. And some of them I got to know quite well and they were just genuinely nice people. So, yeah, that, that experience was was wonderful yeah sounds like you've had some amazing experiences so just our last question um in regards to the epl how do you think or what do you think is the fairest way to finish the season you know um there's been a lot of talk of some of those struggling teams trying to fight for the null and void um you know Mm. brighton and they've just had another player test positive for the coronavirus so Do you think Liverpool end up winning the title and how do you think they should finish this to make it fair for everyone? Yeah, I mean, it's getting a bit ugly. Like, self-interest is taking over and, uh, you know, it's not uh, not ideal. And there's no doubt that the the clubs who are threatened with relegation just want it to be null and void so they can survive and they'll try and do whatever they can to to get that outcome, which is really unfortunate and sad. Um, The fairest way is to finish the league. I've always said that. No matter when football returns, there are only nine games to go. It can be done in a month. So whether it's before July, and I know it gets more complicated afterwards, I think you've just got to find a way to just you know, finish it as quickly as you can because that is far more ideal than the alternative. They'll solve far more problems than if they null and void it because you know, people will talk about Liverpool because they're the biggest club and it's for the title. The Liverpool decision is actually easy. Because no one else is affected. You know, Man City are, what, a 2% chance of winning the league at best. They gave up months ago. They're not going to care if Liverpool's awarded the title. Like, they seriously haven't thought about it for a long time. So no one else is affected. You can award Liverpool the title as much as some people will disagree. But it's not fair on Leeds and West Brom and Fulham. And it's not fair on Leicester 
who've got the chance to make Champions League, they barely get spoken about. Champions League for Leicester, how big is that? It's enormous. They're not going to have the chance next season, most probably. So you can't just have these things taken away. Sheffield United season, can they back that up? You wouldn't think so. So I think they've got to find a way to finish it. Now, if they simply can't, if they simply can't, I don't know what the solution is. I do think Liverpool should be awarded the title because that's not me as a fan speaking out. They're 25 points clear. They were going to win it. Like, common sense certainly has to prevail. And they're awarded the title. That doesn't influence European spots or relegation because, as I said before, in those instances, other teams are affected. They're not with Liverpool. What you do in that respect, if they can't finish it, I I don't know. I I really don't know. Maybe you do have to just call it off, but it seems terribly unfair on a Leeds and a West Brom and a Leicester and the like. So I think they should just do whatever they can to finish it whenever it is safe to return properly. Yeah, I think if they were to say it's too dangerous, they might have to go similar to the French League, how they did with PSG. But there's a lot of clubs in France that are really disappointed with their decision. But then there was also, I think it was Rennes, who are going to make the Champions League for the first time in 132 years or whatever their existence has been. So there's sort of always the hard luck stories, but there's always the, the really good stories too. So it's just a hard hard one to balance it up. Yeah, and it's completely unprecedented, right? So, so rules go out the window. You can actually do whatever you want. There's some people who will say, how can you give Liverpool the league? There's no precedence for that. Well, coronavirus is unprecedented. So you can. I mean, you can, you can, you, you've got to make up rules as you go because we're in a, a situation that's never confronted the league before. Um, you know, do they put two extra teams in, potentially? Do they promote Leeds and West Brom and say, you're in the top two automatic spots. You go up, we play with 22 teams for a season. We relegate four the season after that and four the season after that, and then we get back to 20. I don't know. Maybe that's the way of doing it, um, which again would seem more complicated, but all these things need to be open because we're just in an unprecedented situation. I like that idea. I mean, I, it's like we're going to be living this alternative universe where yeah. Liverpool have won the Prem and Leeds are back in the Prem and, you know, it's, that's the new world, huh? So, look, I, I think that's the way they've got to do it. Um, yeah, I think, you know, teams like Villa and, and Norwich, you know, if they are forced to go down, that's going to be tough. But, you know... We were 20, what, 27, 28 games into the season, you know? So, you know, you kind of can know by, usually know by Christmas who's probably going to go down. But, yeah, definitely some interesting um, decisions to be made by the, by the FA. Um, Michael? We'll move on to Australian football. Obviously, you've covered a lot of the world and been around, but do you enjoy watching the A-League? Yeah, I do. I do enjoy watching the A-League. I'm an Australian football lover. I always have been, ever since the NSL days. I mean, Perth only had a team in 96, but I used to always watch the SBS shows and track the NSL and track the Socceroos, you know, in the early 90s as well, and always had a deep love for Australian football. And uh, and then when the glory came in, I was a big fan from day one and, and used to go to just about every single Perth glory game. So, yeah, I do love the A-League as well, and, and I've really enjoyed covering it and watching it and telling the stories of, of the league since I've come back. I mean, it's not the Premier League. Anyone who tries to compare it or says, I don't watch it because I can watch the Premier League. I mean, to me, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like, it's just completely different things. And, and the A-League is our league. It's our league. So if you love football and you're Australian, well, to me, it doesn't make sense to not take some sort of interest in it. You don't have to be a nailed on fan, but to, 
take interest in it and respect it. And, and I always have. So yeah, it's uh, it's something that I uh, that I enjoy and that I care for and that I want to continue to see prosper. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, we all go to victory games because obviously we're from Melbourne here and just supporting your local team is great because you get to go. Um, yeah. Just following on to that, what do you think needs to be done in Australian football in order <laughs> to promote the game? I know, I know it's quite a broad question, but what, what would you do? Yeah, coronavirus might be over by the time we finished... Um... We finished the discussion on that, but uh, yeah, a lot, a lot. I mean, look, what, one thing I'll say first, and I think I tweeted this during the week, it's not as bad as has been made out to be in terms of the Socceroos and things like that. I mean, it's been a lot of former players talking about, you know, the glory days, and, and I love that. I welcome it enormously. Um, and the golden generation is the absolute benchmark, and I love that team more than anything. We've still done some pretty good things in the last 15 years or so. And we've made three World Cups. We've won an Asian Cup and we've developed a fair few players who have gone overseas as well. Matt Ryan, Aaron Moy, Mila Yedinak, Danny Vukovic, Matt Leckie, Robbie Cruz, plenty others who have played in big leagues for a number of years. So that needs to be taken into account. It's not as bad as things are being made out. In terms of the A-League though, in the actual league, yeah, that's a big worry because the broadcast deal is up in the air. If Fox gets out of it, it could... Pre- you know, present some opportunities for the league to become creative and the league to open up, hopefully into a second division before too long. But the financial hit they will take will be enormous. And that's going to hurt the clubs and therefore the players in a massive way. So I have grave concerns uh, for the A-League if that comes to, to fruition. Hopefully it doesn't. So yeah, there are worrying times. How do we promote it more and more? I just think we've got to unite the football family. I know that's a very general term, and I know that's been a issue and a fight for 50 years or so, but you know, there are there's millions of people who are connected to the game in this country. And if you support an overseas team or you watch the Premier League or you your kid goes and plays under sixes or you play amateur football, you're involved in the game. So we should be getting more people into the A League. When you look at the amount of engaged participants in the game compared to how many people go to A-League games and how many people watch them. The crowds actually aren't that bad. The crowds are actually decent, but the TV ratings need to be a lot better. People need to watch the games more. Um, We need to find a way to engage that community. Maybe a second division opens things up a bit more. I don't know. But, you know, you just got to promote it more and more and more and be ruthless with that. And it's not easy because... We live in a sporting market that's the most difficult in the world per capita. And you're competing with very big codes and only a a population of 20 million people. So it's tough, but you've just got to find a way to bring the football community together and not have these fractures. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we all want a good Socceroos team. We want want a a team that's going to get into the second round of the World Cup and and represent us. Look, you've been to two World Cups. Um, Tell us a bit about that. Obviously, you know, Brazil in 2014 uh, would have been, you know, absolutely incredible. And um, Michael and I had the privilege of, of being in Russia last year or two years ago now. Um, but just tell us a bit about what, what that was like for you. And, you know, it's the greatest event in the world, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, three World Cups. I went to South Africa 2010 oh, as well. Africa, so yeah, sorry, sorry I was there that. too. Um, yeah, amazing. I mean, were you guys in the sports bar in Kazan around the France game? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was, Michael, you weren't there yet, but 
the um yeah it was packed with aussies oh it was great i mean though that's what the world cup's about like yeah the games are unbelievable of course um and such a buzz and you know walking I, my favorite 24 hours is the 24 hours around an aussie game at a world cup if you're lucky enough to be there because you know it starts the night before with a party and then you know you you're up and going the next morning wherever you might be with friends at a bar somewhere if you're lucky enough to be at you know an FFA function or a supporters function, wherever it is, it's just electricity in the air as everyone gets hyped up. And then that walk to the ground is just brilliant as everyone starts to merge together, all the Aussie fans and the songs come out and you see all the flags and the colours. And then you see the opposition fans. It's just the best feeling ever. And then, of course, the game. And, and then that night, whatever happens, you get done 4-0. You're still going to be drinking and, and partying and singing your song. So that can't be beat. And then covering it is just awesome as well because, you know, the mainstream media, which doesn't pay much attention to football outside of that time, you know, everyone's eyes are on it. You know, they, they become the biggest story in, in Australian sport. And to be there covering it intensely all the time, I just, I just love and love telling the stories. And I love the Socceroos players. I think they're just really good guys. Um, and they care a lot about the game and about the team. And, uh, you know, just covering that team, I've just, I've just thoroughly enjoyed in, in unique countries on massive stages like the World Cup. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the day out in Samara was probably my favourite 24 hours of, I don't know, I was going to say my life. But, that <laughs> but you know, just, uh, you know, 5,000 Aussie fans getting on, you know, communist trams and heading up yeah. to the stadium and, you know, making fun of the, the Danes. I, it's just incredible. And, you know, I was lucky enough to see, you know, two, two penalties slot uh, be slotted away by... By Mila Jedinak, but what, you know what about 2014? Um, you know that was a pretty. Whilst you know we only came out with a point, it was a pretty iconic campaign in in a sense. Yeah, I mean look, they're all different. So, so 2010 was still the golden generation, right? 2010 was still. I mean, Viduka had gone, but the rest of the team were pretty much still the golden gen. So you know we had high hopes, and we actually played really well, apart from that first game where. You know, you lose 2-0 against Germany, you get through the group, lose 4-0, you don't. After that, the Ghana game, the 10 men, amazing performance. And then we beat Serbia. So, you know, our last World Cup win, uh, that was really memorable from that point of view because the team was just so strong. 2014, you know, everything's flipped on its head. You know, Holger's gone, Ange comes in, golden generation pretty much gone apart from Cahill and Bresciano. And this new brigade comes in. And, I mean, I remember being excited for the World Cup, obviously, and to watch Australia, but fearful. Like, we could get embarrassed here. Like, Netherlands, uh, Spain, Chile. I mean, we could be the laughing stock of the world. And thankfully, we weren't. 20 minutes in against Chile, we were 2 0 down, and we thought, all right, this is going to be really, really difficult for the nation to cop. But, you know, then they turned around, and that Dutch game was just uh, the best day out. I mean, Timmy's goal was the most magical thing you could ever see live as an Aussie. And, uh, and that whole tournament, you just had so much pride in the team and what this young side were doing. And then 2018, again, that team had matured. So we had hopes of getting through the group. But then Ange leaves, Bert comes in, and you're just not sure how it's all going to go. I mean, they did pretty well against France. Should have beaten Denmark with the chances we had late. And then, you know, Peru, you know, played a lot better than us. So, yeah, just different stories and a lot of great moments. But... Unlike 2006, not that one moment that will savour for 
the rest of our lives because we never got through the group, apart from the Cahill goal. That's one moment that you go, all right. You know, that's one thing I'll talk about when I'm, when I'm 100 in terms of the, the achievements. Just feel short, unfortunately, after 2006. Yeah, well, look, leading up to 2018, I mean, I, got, I probably around 2015 was when I really started getting into following the Socceroos. And I think, you know, you're sort of at the depths of your obsession when you're up at 3am watching um, the Socceroos play in Kyrgyzstan away. <laughs> I wanted to ask about some of those, you know, some of those countries. We went to, uh, where do we go? Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. Bangladesh, Jordan. I mean, yeah. what's it like visiting a, a country that, you know, obviously not known for, for football, but, you know, now we're in the AFC and, and these are the teams that, you know, we play. Yeah, it's so cool. So, yeah, I went to Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan three months apart from each other. Jordan as well, uh, which was also very unique. All of these places are great. Um, one thing I'll say first and foremost is when you do go to these countries, you realise how difficult it is for the Aussies away from home. And people, there are some naive people who say, oh, we should cruise through Asia. Come on, who are we playing? Jordan, the UAE, blah, blah. Until you go to these countries and you see the pitch and you understand the climate and how hot it can get and the crowds. I mean, the Jordan crowd is the most intimidating crowd I've ever seen in football. They were so loud. It's honestly a four-goal swing playing Jordan at home and, and playing Jordan away. So you realise then how difficult it is, but... Also, these places are so interesting. I mean, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan in particular, I'll never go there again. Um, and I never thought I would go to these countries, but they're just so unique. And, and the locals, because they are such minnow nations, they were just so happy to have a country like Australia in their backyard. Not only the football team, but a country like Australia. They, you could just tell they were so overjoyed by it that they had some sort of global attention. And that was really great to experience and to see the joy on their faces. But, I mean, they're a world away from, from the, the culture that we experience. I mean, we did a story in Kyrgyzstan on their most popular sport, which is dead goat polo. Like, I'm not joking. They play polo with a dead goat. And we watched this happen. And it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. But that's what they do. And, like, these guys are like the... You know, Jonathan Thurston's and Chris Judd of, of Kyrgyzstan. They're like big stars. It's, um, it's bizarre. So little things like that are just unforgettable experiences. I mean, I think if you ever want an example of how hard it is to play, I mean, I remember that first Miller Yedinak goal in Kyrgyzstan almost hit a sandbar, had a free kick sandbar up over the keeper. And, you know, when the, when the Kyrgs came and played here, I think it was a, it was at seven nil. Was that the seven nil, or I, I can't exactly remember. But yeah, they look like amateurs. But you go to Kyrgyzstan. I mean, they they got a goal against us. We only we only got up two one there. I mean, clearly, you know, you know, any good team going there is going to struggle. They probably deserved a result on the balance of play. Kyrgyzstan, Thailand, uh, beat us away from home. We you know we we roll them when we play them at home. It's a completely different ball game. So I hope more and more Australian fans understand that and therefore give the team, even though the team is not performing as well as we would like and we're not producing as many plays as we would like, give all that. Um, it's more difficult than they imagine, firstly. And secondly, these nations are getting more and more money pumped into them all the time. Even a Kyrgyzstan, like they've got money coming through. Don't worry about that. They've got some wealthy people putting serious cash into the team. And it's hard for Australia to keep pace with all of them, even though we've got apart from three or four, you know, undoubtedly better players. 
Well, yeah, look, I think, um, you know, it's, it's very different to our days qualifying in, in, in Oceania, where we kind of would breeze through until, until the playoff. Um, Nick, what, kind of thinking about that, what, what, yeah. Yeah, so do you think that the Socceroos have prog- progressed from 2010 and also looking forward to 2022 Qatar? Um, do you have some high hopes for the Socceroos? Are there any prospects, um, anyone that you're looking at that you think can be an integral part of that 2022 World Cup? Yeah, I mean, look, we haven't progressed, but we won the Asian Cup. That was an awesome moment, and that can't be forgotten. In terms of World Cups, no, we haven't progressed. Uh, we've dropped back a little bit, and there's no doubt about that. The standard of the team is, has dropped back. Um, 2022, Qatar, reasonably hopeful. I think if we get our best team on the park, we can still cause some damage and get through the group depending on who we draw in the group stages. I think if we get Daniel Arzani up to his full potential and Martin Boyle as well, I'm excited by Boyle. I think he could be a really good player. He's got a lot of pace. You get those two in along with someone like Lecky who's quick, even though maybe he's starting, not to decline, but... Okay, we'll start to watch his age over the next couple of years and where, exactly where he's at. But Azani's young, Boyle's a bit younger. They've got pace and creativity and an eye for goal. That could be exciting. Um, midfielders will be solid. You know, we've got good players in that area of the park. Defensively, you know, we should be okay and we've got a, a top-class goalkeeper, obviously. The area of concern is is someone who can score in World Cups. I mean, that's we're not the only country who has that problem, right? Like, there's lots of countries who struggle to find a genuine World Cup goal scorer, someone who can find the back of the net in a massive tournament like that. We're not the only nation. Like, they're the most difficult players to find in football. So that's why we cherished Tim Cahill for so long. That's why we loved Mark Baduka. That's why we loved Harry Keel, because we knew they could score those sorts of goals. Um, You know, Brett Holman pops up in 2010 and does it. Yedinak does it from the penalty spot in in 2014 and 2018. But other than that, unfortunately, there hasn't been a player. Now, there's Jamie McLaren, there's Adam Taggart, um, and there are others who are looking as possibilities as as strikers, as, as out-and-out strikers coming through. But until they actually do it uh, on the world stage like that, or consistently through qualifying, you just don't know. And, uh, and that's going to be the big question mark on the team, whether they can score those crucial goals to get through the group. Yeah, I agree. Someone like Arzani, who we saw in spurts in 2018, it looked like he could just beat a man without even trying against, you know, really world-class players. So I think, like you said, if we can get him fit, firing, and working in that system, uh, um, he's definitely someone to watch for 2022. Just moving forward... What's your future in football? Are you going to go to Qatar as a fan? Or <laughs> what are you thinking in terms of it all? Yeah, I'll don't, don't know yet. So I've left Fox Sports. So we'll wait and see once coronavirus eases where I go next. Uh, you know, whether that's in football, whether that's in media and sport full stop, we just don't know. We'll have to wait and see. I'd like to think so. So yeah, it's unsure in, in that respect. Hopefully I'm in Qatar, I'd love to be there. I know there's negativity around the World Cup and for good reason, but having been to Qatar twice to watch the Socceroos or cover the Socceroos, it wouldn't be the worst place for a World Cup because everything's going to be pretty close. You'll be able to go to a couple of games in a day. All the fans will be in one area. Uh, you know, the best and worst part of the World Cup is traveling. Like, you have a lot of fun when you travel, 
but it can also be the pits, like being up at 4 a.m. and catching it, you know, a plane. Like in Brazil, I remember we caught a plane between two cities. We stopped six times. It was like a three-hour flight. Imagine stopping six times between like Melbourne and Brisbane. And that's what we had to do up and down the whole time to drop off different people at different spots. And it was like, this is the most annoying thing ever. So those things will go out the window, which I think will be enjoyable and, and people will all be together. So I'd like that. But, you know, ultimately, anywhere you watch the Socceroos, if we're lucky enough to make a World Cup, I'd be happy. And uh, hopefully I'll be there in what capacity, I have no idea at this stage. Well, more than welcome to uh, come with us. You don't need to sell us. We're, <laughs> uh, we're saving um, using our coronavirus uh, Centrelink supplements to, nice. to get us there. Um, so we're, we're going we're gonna to wrap up. Um, and it's been amazing hearing hearing all your stories, and and um, obviously we're looking forward to seeing you pop up um, within the footballing world um, in the near future. To end, we're gonna we're gonna give you a quick fire minute. We're gonna give you some either ors, no justification. Okay. You just give us give us your answer. Alrighty, are you are you ready? Yep. All right, Messi or Ronaldo? Messi. EPL or La Liga? EPL. Pelé or Maradona? Maradona. Wembley or the Maracanã? Maracanã. Kuehl or Viduka? Oh, God. <laughs> like picking... Uh, it's like choosing between your children, but Harry... 4-3-3 uh, or 4-4-2? 4-3-3. Guardiola or Mourinho? Um, Guardiola. I'd love to give justification, but... No, not yet. Guardiola. Um, R9 or Ronaldinho? R9. Total football or tiki-taka? Tiki-taka. Yedinak or Moy? Yedinak. Us or Ange? Oh. I oh, know. That's a, a big one. Jesus, you guys have done well here. Uh, Ange. Um, Nick's just put in our Google document. Liverpool or Perth? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that's fair, is it? That's not very fair. Um, um, but Liverpool. Um, and we actually had one, uh, one person <laughs> on Instagram wanted us to ask you, as we're Melbourne Victory fans, we have this... Um, you probably met him, the guy that sells nuts out the front of the stadium. Peanuts or pistachios? <laughs> um, peanuts only because you don't have to crack the shells. I True. gave justification there. True. Can I give justification? Can we go through and give justifications now, or I'm all yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you want to? What do you want to justify? So you struggled with the cool. Or the... I just go through all of them, right? Because then none right, of them okay. are easy. So Messi, Ronaldo. I mean, only because Messi's more of a team man, I think. So yes. that's the only reason why. But it's a tough call. I mean, I love Ronaldo yeah. as well. Yeah. EPL, La Liga, I'm guessing, you know. Oh, that's straightforward. I mean, I'm a Premier yeah. League fan through and through. Pelé Maradona? Uh, I just think Pelé relied on a quality team more than Maradona did. Maradona took yep. Napoli to the title on his own. That says it all. Wembley, Maracanã. You paused on that one for a bit. Yeah, because I've never been to the Maracanã and I've been to Wembley and I love it, but I just think the Maracanã would be more unique, like something yeah. you wouldn't experience anywhere else. Yeah, uh, we had Harry or Dukes. I mean, that's so ridiculously hard. I'll go Harry only because he played for Liverpool. Like, yeah. that's the only reason why, really. Um, but I love them both and both amazing. Yeah, the 4-3-3 or the 4-4-2. 
433, I think, is a more rounded formation. Definitely. 442 is the, you know, I think we grew up on that and loved loved the the staple and loved the big man, little man strike force. But 433 is a a far more rounded uh, football formula. Yeah. Guardiola Mourinho? This is tough because, like, peak Mourinho um, is arguably better, but he just fluctuated too much and he always found too many issues. Guardiola's more stable. So if I'm picking one to coach my team tomorrow, I'd probably go Pep. Yeah, at the moment, yeah. Um, R9 or Ronaldinho? Oh, Ronaldinho was... Ronaldinho was the best player in the world for a couple of years and had the ability to jump up into that, like, Messi, Ronaldo, Maradona bracket. And then he just stopped. And he stopped on his own accord. Like, he got a bit lazy, I think, whereas Ronaldo copped injuries. Um, So it wasn't really his own doing. And I think he was... You know, slightly more brilliant when he was at his best. Total football or tiki taka? I love Spain. I love those Spanish teams more than yeah. anything. Like Spain, 2010, 2012, 2014. I mean, I just absolutely loved what 28, sorry, 2008, 2010, 2012, that period. The World Cup and two Euros. I mean, they're my favorite team to watch. So. Well. We might get some total football from the Dutch at the uh, Euros next year. Um, Yedinak or Moy, that's a tough one for me. They're my two favourite players, I think. Yeah, it was really tough. Um, I think Yeti, because he's just, as a captain, unbelievable. Like, Aaron, I love watching play, but um, he's pretty quiet, let's be honest. He doesn't like talking um, too much. And and I think Yedinak is a leader and is a... As a cult figure, just stood out. I mean, he's another one that transcended along with Cahill. Like every Australian sports fan knows who Mila Yedinak is now. So, yeah, I think that's probably the reason why. And the last one, probably the hardest, Gus or Ange? Really tough. I mean, Gus has obviously achieved more, but I just think Ange means more to us as Australian football fans. Like his passion for Australia, you have to put him in. Um, you know, Gus gave us incredible memories, but so did Ange winning the Asian Cup and... Uh, you know, just listening to the man speak about Australia and as an ambassador for Australia, different levels. So you had to go him. Beautiful. Well, thanks for the justifications. And uh, <laughs> look, uh, just a privilege for us to be able to talk to you um, and, and hear some of your stories and uh, and your passion for, for the game. Hope to see you in, in the footballing world in the future. I'm sure you will be. Um, and if it's not, you know, working, then you, you're a fan. Um, and, and, you know, we, we're all waiting, I think. We've got Bundesliga next week. We've had a bit of Korean League, although I'll admit I'm probably a bit sick of that now. <laughs> um, and, and, yeah, look, thank you so much for, for spending your um, time in isolation with us um, and doing this over Zoom. Um, any other following uh, final comments from, from you other two boys? No, nah, just, a, just a massive thank you. Like, it's been pretty, pretty cool to hear some of the stories um, and some of your experiences. So, yeah, means a lot, and we appreciate your time. Thanks, boys. Really enjoyed it. All the best. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Obviously, uh, yeah, awesome to get that um, interview. And uh, for me, that was really interesting, hearing his stories and, you know, the, the passion, you know, the fact that he, you know, wanted to justify all of his claims in our, in our either-or, I thought was, you know, shows his passion. Yes, definitely. Uh someone that's really passionate about the game. And you, you could tell from the tone of his voice that um, he's really excited about the future um, in Australian football too. Um, he, he definitely sees that there's some problems, but yeah, definitely someone that's really passionate 
and just loves the game. Yeah, that was great. Um, I thought it was fantastic to have some insight from him and um, I actually learned a bit tonight. So, yeah, yeah, really enjoyed that tonight. Yeah, me too. Well, boys, better get saving for Qatar 2022. And on the topic of World Cups, uh, the next episode we will be bringing you on the football story is what has been the best World Cup of the 21st century? 2002, 2006, 10, 14 or 18? So we're going to look at those five and we're going to have a chat and discuss which one we think's the best. So I think that just about concludes for tonight. Hope you've enjoyed the interview. We certainly did. And we'll catch you next time on the Football Story Podcast.